It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. The program that, uh, well, it could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church, especially if they're buying into all the weirdness that's... Man, I, I tell you, have you, ever, have you guys noticed that the uh, in the sermons we've been reviewing lately that even the gospel nugget has been missing? Yeah, we used to, many times here at Fighting for the Faith when we do a sermon review, we, we track the speed of the gospel nugget as it comes in and, and leaves the sermon. Lately, it seems like even the gospel nugget has been missing from the uh, sermons we've been reviewing Sorry, you're catching me in mid-conversation with uh, my listeners here. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, dishing up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to get you to think biblically and to get you to think critically and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Jesus was not joking. When uh, talking about the last days, the first thing out of his mouth was, make sure that no one deceives you. That was that was his first <laughs> warning and admonition regarding the last days. And uh, man, oh man, there just is no, uh, there's no end to the supply of deception in the Christian church uh, nowadays that, um, you know, so that's the reason why we exist, by the way, partly to warn, partly to teach, partly to help you to get up on your own feet in this sense, uh, because uh, basically what do we do? We compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God, and I am not at all exempt from this little exercise. In fact, if you're not comparing what I'm saying to the Word of God, uh, we have to have a ch- We have to have a talk, because, uh, you know, hey, I'm a human being, and I'm capable of making uh, mistakes or being deceived myself. So I, I, again, admonition here is uh, make sure that no one deceives you, not even Roseboro. So, all right, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. We've got a, a good program lined up today. I'm in kind of one of those melancholy type moods uh, because, you know, I, I was hoping that, you know, heresy season was over and, uh, you know, that we'd have a little smoother sailing, a little lighter programming. But Man, this week has been an earthquake. It just, well, maybe earthquake's the wrong way, but it's been a tornado. You see, I'm, I'm used to those now. No, I'm not. I'm not used to them. But anyway, uh, <laughs> it has been a Category 5 hurricane of crazy things going on. So uh, let's, uh, I'm going to read an email from Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley. Always enjoy those uh, from uh, Pastor Charmley. He, again, just, he's a wealth of historical data, good fact checker for the program, and always has some fun things to say. Uh, Then we've got a a story from the Christian Telegraph, uh, apologetics ministry assaulted at a Muslim festival. I actually posted a link to a YouTube video that chronicled this particular event. And if you'd like to see it, then you need to uh, visit my my Facebook page or uh, take a look at my Twitter tweets. Boy, do I hate those words put together, Twitter tweets. It makes me sound like some... (laughs) Uh, it challenges my maleness. I'm still, you know, Twitter, <laughs> you know, okay. I use it. I enjoy it. I consider it to be a valid and, and important way of communicating. 
just the name is just ridiculous. Anyway, so we, uh, if you want to see the video on that, uh, head over to uh, Twitter.com uh, and look me up and follow me. My name there is Pirate Christian, or, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. Uh, although it's on my wall, it'll, you know, it'll, anyway, if you know what Facebook is, you can do that. Uh, let's see. UK Anglicans opt for biblical reform over split. This is a great story. And I can't wait to share that with you. Let's see here. And then I promised you yesterday we'd talk about the fact, well, here's bad. Uh, You liberals out there, uh, you got some splaining to do. Uh, You've been telling us for years that King David was probably a, a, you know, a fictitious character, you know, some, that he didn't really historically exist. Well, some archaeologists out there have... Uh, Dr. Elliot Mazar, by the way, uh, a female, she's uh, stuck her uh, shovel into the into the dirt there in Jerusalem, and wouldn't you know it, she dug up King David's palace. I thought he was supposed to be uh, a fictitious character, you liberals out there. You know what's funny is is that uh, with the discovery of King David's uh, palace, liberal uh, theologians are not going to go. You know, maybe we're we're wrong, and and we we need to consider changing our uh, our theological bent and, 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 you know, join up with these people who actually believe the Bible is the word of God and historically accurate, infallible, uh, all that kind of stuff inspired, you know, all those important words, the, the infallible inspired word of God, plenary inspiration kind of being the, uh, the really $5 theological term there anyway. Uh, but no, that this won't hamper them. They'll just find something else to claim to be fictitious. So, uh, we'll be reading a story regarding that today. And then we have to ask the question, what was being taught at Rob Bell's just-concluded Poets, Prophets, and Preachers Conference? Uh, the, oh, man. There's uh, I, I don't want to talk about it at the moment. We'll, we'll get to it as the, course, as the program uh, progresses today, but... There's some very strange, and I mean strange stuff that was uh, taught today. Uh, not today, a couple of you know, yesterday or the day before over at the Rob Bell's uh, Poets, Prophets, Preachers Conference, which was brought to you by Zondervan. Yeah, uh, yeah they've, uh, the Rob Bell camp has promised that there will be a video uh Made available, DVD made available of the Poets, Prophets, and Preachers Conference, and uh, Zondervan has their hand in it, which basically begs the question, why is Zondervan uh, shilling for these uh, heretical emergent guys? And uh, you don't believe that they're heretical, uh, that the emergent guys are heretical? Well, uh, I'll read to you some of the stuff that was uh, said uh, by one of the conference speakers at Rob Bell's, that would be, yeah, Rob Bell of the uh, Mars Hill Church there in Grand Rapids, Michigan, of NUMA fame, by the way. And, they, and I think they've recent, they've just released a brand new video. But uh, Rob Bell at, at this, this conference had one of his uh, buddies there uh, speaking. And uh, in fact, uh, leading up to, let me let me find this, hang on a second here. What was this kid's name? Shane Hips. That's his name, Shane Hips. Uh, prior to the conference, uh, Rob Bell was saying that Shane Hip was gonna Shane Hips was going to quote bring the thunder. I don't know about bringing thunder, but boy, he brought something really bizarre, and uh, we're, we'll be talking about that today. 
Uh, if time permits, uh, <laughs> I'm going to ask the question, hey, what's with the Massachusetts Bible Society? Yeah, what's with the Massachusetts Bible Society? There, there's something wrong there. Something, uh, we'll be playing some audio from a video. And then our, our sermon review today is not really a sermon. It's going to be a lecture delivered by uh, Pastor Stephen Furtick. Uh, he did this at a conference about a year ago, the Evolve Conference back in 2008. And it's on Sun Stand Still Prayers. This is a perfect example of allegorized scripture and how not to interpret God's word. And so worth the listen, uh, you know, at least for the fact that Stephen Furtick is a charismatic guy. And, and uh, I, I, you know, he's a pretty good communicator. The problem is what he's communicating has some serious problems uh, as far as how he handles God's word. So we'll be getting in that today. So lots and lots to do, lots to talk about. So uh, go ahead and grab yourself a, a beverage if you can or kick up your feet, get comfortable. Or if you'd like to work out and exercise and lose weight while listening to Fighting for the Faith. Um, I, it has not yet been proven uh, that Fighting for the Faith is a catalyst for weight loss. In my particular case, it may actually be a catalyst for weight gain. But if, for you, it might actually help you with weight loss if you uh, listen well on a treadmill or on a, on a recumbent bike or you know something like that. P- pull out the total gym uh, and uh, you know grab your iPod and listen that way. Uh, lots and lots to do. So let's dive in. All right, from the Christian Telegraph. Apologetics ministry assaulted at Muslim festival. And again, I saw the video on this. I posted it uh, at Facebook and Twitter, and uh, bone-chilling is probably the best way I can describe it. An apologetics witness certified by the Southern Baptist was among a small group of evangelical Christians escorted by Dearborn, Michigan police from the grounds of the American Arab Festival after the team said they were assaulted by members of the event's security detail and several attendees reported the Baptist press. By the way, I've seen the video and they most certainly were assaulted. In fact, uh, some of the quote security guys, uh, apparently if, if you put a, a, a shirt on that says security, then that, that exempts you from uh, laws regarding assault. Uh, these guys were literally hitting, hitting uh, the camera and uh, I'm going to tell you this, this apologetics group, the only thing they sought to do was ask questions. They were not there preaching. They were not there proclaiming Jesus Christ. They went inside the uh, one of the, uh, the tents there and saw a booth that you know, basically invited people to ask questions about Islam. They grabbed a, 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 a brochure, a flyer, looked through it, and they wanted to go back in and uh, ask questions regarding some of the things said in the uh, the pamphlet that they had been given and uh, that's when uh, all all hell broke loose literally and uh, again if you want to see the video I've I tweeted it out today so it's it's on Twitter or on Facebook we continue with the story uh, Mary Jo Sharp of Friendswood Texas who is an apologetics instructor and certified by the North American Mission Board said that the police report filed on the incident, incident caricatured the witnessing team as shouting hellfire warnings. They never did. While their evangelistic methods focus on sharing the gospel with Muslims in a logical, well-reasoned dialogue, the apologetics group was in Dearborn for a debate between Sharp and a Muslim apologist and decided to attend the festival as well. No one was reported as injured in the June 21st encounter. 
According to one account included in the police report, David Wood and Nabil Qureshi of Acts 17 Apologetics Ministry were being quite vocal with the Muslims attending the event, even telling people they were going to hell. That is an outright lie. Uh, for believing in Islam, the police report said that the crowd became agitated at the aggressive dialogue. Security was called to the scene, and according to the report, Wood, Qureshi, and Sharp were escorted to the security command center and then taken from the grounds by city police. Quote, we didn't ever say that. It's a lie, said Sharp, and he's telling the truth. They, they were not shouting out anything like that. Uh, also a member of the Southern Baptist Texas Convention's women ministry team uh, uh, and has a master's degree in Christian apologetics from Biola University early on June 22nd, the group filed their own report with the police department and produced raw video footage of their encounter with the festival security forces. Qureshi became a Christian out of Islam and Wood is a former atheist. In their, t in their testimonies, both men attribute their salvation in part to reasoned debates. The Acts 17 apologetics ministry established by Wood and Qureshi seeks to present evidence for the existence and attributes of God, the inspiration of the historical reliability of the scriptures, and the death and resurrection and deity of Jesus Christ. Qureshi said, we also refute the arguments of those who oppose the true gospel, most commonly the arguments of Muslims and atheists. Sharp, Wood, and Qureshi were in Dearborn as part of the Great Debate Series, uh, Michigan, facilitated by the Center for Religious Debate, a subsidiary of the Acts 17 Apologetics Ministry. While they were in Michigan, the group went to the American Arab Festival trying to engage people in discussion about Christianity and Islam. Dearborn, Michigan has the highest concentration of Muslim immigrants in the United States. Uh, their 30,000 Muslims account for one-third of the city's population. Qureshi said he and Wood were trying to talk with an attendant at the booth where a banner read, Islam got questions, get answers. The attendant initially did not want to answer Qureshi's questions as Sharp videotaped, but did eventually engage in the conversation. Security guards soon approached the booth and tried to stop the exchange. A female security guard slapped at the camera, closing the viewfinder in an effort to stop the taping. Sharp said that the three left the booth to regroup. A nearby police officer assured them uh, the video camera was legal because the festival was being held in a public place. Qureshi decided he wanted to return to the booth and complete the interview so that they, the video could be posted on the ministry's website. This time, however, a fourth person was with them and the three video cameras were running. A different attendant was at the booth and he also hesitated before agreeing to dialogue. Soon, another person grabbed at Wood's camera and demanded to, uh, an end to the recording. Uh, the uh, team said they saw festival security personnel who were not associated with Dearborn police speaking the, uh, with two teenage boys. Uh, one of the boys approached Qureshi and demanded to know why he was there. The second teen snatched a pamphlet from Qureshi's hand and gave it to the uh, security guard, apparently thinking it was a gospel track when it actually was an Islamic track that uh, Qureshi had picked up. Uh, for security, uh, four security guards then approached the Christian group and told them they could not preach on the streets or hand out literature. They weren't doing either of those things, uh, neither of which what the group was doing, Sharp said. Sharp and the wood videotaped the confrontation, and the security guards kept insisting the cameras be turned off and repeatedly hit the cameras. Uh, you, you know, they named this uh, video uh, Sharia in the United States. It's bone-chilling. You need to see it, and uh, this is exactly what... You know, we're talking about here when we t say that Islam is is 
is not the religion of peace at all. It is a false religion that enslaves people and keeps them from hearing the truth. And a very bone-chilling thing, to say the least. All right, I got an email from Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley, and uh, he uh, chimed in regarding Helen Keller. Uh, Helen Keller was quoted in the Adventure Sermon, uh, that we the adventure of a lifetime from uh, was it South Hill uh, uh, South Hills Church in Corona, California. Uh, the uh, Moses Camacho, who I don't even think he's he's old enough to shave. Anyway, uh, he said, uh, Pastor Charmley says, FYI, Helen Keller, who was quoted in the Adventure Sermon, sermon was a Swedenborgian minister. Swedenborgianism is, of course, a cult. She may have been a nice lady. She may have heroically overcome blindness, but she was still a minister in a cult. Human opinions count for little in preaching, and the opinions of cultists count for even less, especially Swedenborgians. Well, you know, Pastor Charmley, it sounds like uh, you believe in something called truth, and that true is that truth is true, and, and that, that the opposite of the truth is an error or falsehood. You see, you just don't have a you know a broad opinion here. You know, you, you need to open up your mind. And no, I'm I'm kidding. <sighs> That's the day we live in, by the way. Especially Swedenborg. Uh, Swedenborg allegorized the Bible out of all meaning. Try reading his Heaven and Hell. It makes your brain itch. You know, I don't like reading books like that. That make my brain itch. It just. I've been reading something by one of these emergent guys, Peter Rollins, and it's making my brain itch. It's it's actually just highfalutin spiritual sounding pablum and uh, he makes this quote in in this one book that i've been reading and says the problem with the with the religious literature is that it's trying to convince you to repent <laughs> well duh anyway and, and so by the way regarding pronouncing names and i'm going to have to make some kind of a handy dandy chart here uh that you know to help me out here uh pastor charmley said that you know what i've been pronouncing as gloucester is pronounced gloucester and uh uh or is pronounced lester and Habsburg, a place in norfolk where he is from is pronounced uh hasboro and there's a place in norfolk called uh hat Boys, and it's pronounced hobus hi and he says this is all part of a conspiracy to make american radio show hosts sound foolish Thanks. <laughs> Apparently it's succeeded. Okay. All right. Talking about the Brits, great news out of the UK. This is the kind of news I like to read. And so, you know, not all news is, is bad news. So here's, here's some interesting good news. Uh, this is from the Telegraph, uh, not from the Telegraph. There's a, I have a, a version of this from the Telegraph, but I'm going to read the Christian Post version of the story. Uh, this is entitled, UK Anglicans Offer Biblical Reform Over Split. This is by Lillian Kwan of the Christian Post. She writes, uh, conservative Anglicans in the United Kingdom aren't going anywhere despite their objections to the liberal direction some churches within their na- national church have taken. And to help them continue to stay in uh, in the Church of England without compromising their orthodox views on Scripture, they launched a fellowship in London on Monday that is meant to serve as a spiritual movement grounded in Christian orthodoxy and Anglican tradition. Called the Fellowship of Confessing Anglicans, the new movement exists to keep orthodox biblical Anglicanism inside the fold at the highest level possible. And Peter Jensen, Anglican Archbishop of Sydney, according to Virtue Online... 
The movement comes out of an invitation by conservative Anglican bishops from mainly the uh, Global South. Last summer, leaders at the Global Anglican Future Conference, who uh, believe some in the Anglican communion are preaching a false gospel, affirmed Christian orthodoxy and invited like-minded Anglicans to establish a separate fellowship. In North America, conservatives heeded the call as they saw little hope in the Episcopal Church. Uh, the U.S. arm of Anglican Anglicanism, the Anglican Church of Canada, turned back from their liberal ways. Last month, they established a new province called the Anglican Church in North America, uniting around 700 uh, parishes that left the national churches. Several Anglican leaders from across the communion have recognized the new province as authentically Anglican. In the United Kingdom, however, conservative Anglicans are taking a different approach, promoting biblical truth from within. Oh, they're, they're going to stay put, and they're going to go on the attack. Love it. Uh, the Bishop of Luz, uh, I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, too. Uh, the Bishop of Luz, the Right Reverend Wallace Ben, said that FCA, that's the Fellowship of Confessing Anglicans, is intended to stop the church from being divided by moving the global body back to the historic Christian faith. Right on. See, this is, oh, man. This Reverend uh, Wallace Ben guy sounds like my kind of guy. Just, you know, we need to be praying for the Fellowship of Confessing Anglicans. They're going to do a brave thing. They're going to stand their ground. And what are they going to do? They're going to preach Christ. They're going to preach Christian orthodoxy. They're going to preach the historic Christian faith. And they're going to basically... uh, outflank the liberals in their own denomination. Love it. Love it. So the FCA is hoping not to go the American way, instead see a renewed and reformed church in their land. We are a movement for the renewal and reformation and renewed mission focus of our church, Ben said. We love our church and we're not going anywhere. Noting that this, uh, that some churches in the UK are moving away from Christian orthodoxy, that's a nice way of putting it, Ben said that they are trying to pull back Together, people whose Anglican identity has been made difficult or or who find that it is threatened. Quote, we want to stand with people and support them and say, you don't have to go away. We will support you and stand with you. Going to keep an eye on these guys. Got to keep an eye on these guys. Wow, this is exciting, exciting news. So our prayers and support go out to the Fellowship of Confessing Anglicans who are going to stand their ground and uh, basically go on the offensive with the goal of taking back the uh, uh, the church there in England. Praise the Lord. Right on. This is exactly... By the way, the, uh, yeah, I, again, I cannot tell you how exciting that makes me. I just, you know... And think about it this way, okay? It's something... One of the things I've been just thinking about, you know, and cause I have a lot of time to stew on these theological things. Um, what is liberalism? What is what is this liberalism thing in in Christianity? Well, what liberalism is it, it, Christian liberalism, and I'm using the term Christian really loosely there in that sentence, is really uh, is a, a group of Christians who have capitulated to a portion of the of the culture. Okay, the the culture outside of the Christian church, to say the culture in England or the culture in the United States or a portion of Western culture, if you would, uh, it, it embraces this liberal looniness. Okay, 
Um, and as a result of it, what happened is, is that they brought their liberal looniness into the church. They were, and so what happened is, is that liberalism is an example of what happens when the church capitulates to the culture. Our job is not to capitulate to the culture. Our job as Christians is to boldly proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name to all nations. You don't like it? We're tough. We're not changing our message. What these people have done, they say, well, you know, we don't want our message to be offensive to the culture. So what we're going to do is we're going to tuck that stuff away and talk about things that the culture's interested in, you know, you know, social justice, things like that. So uh, the the liberal, you know, uh, the liberal Western culture is what has basically uh, happened. And so what you see, you know, church, mainline church bodies like the ELCA like the uh, Episcopal Church, like large portions of Anglicanism, like the United Methodist Church, they have um, allowed this portion of Western culture to dictate the message of the Christian church, and they've been completely overrun. The liberals literally are, are the ones who pioneered this whole idea about being culturally relevant. They were being culturally relevant to, you know, let's just say ideas that were a little higher upstream in Western culture, the seeker-sensitive movement, the seeker-driven, purpose-driven movement, that is capitulating to kind of a more base, the base part of our culture, pop culture, okay? So, uh, and it's going to end up in the same thing. It's going to end up in the exact same place, just outright rank heresy, preaching of a different gospel. We're We're already seeing that now. You cannot capitulate to the culture in, in in any way, shape, or form. We're not. There's no mandate for that. There's no. There's no reason for it, and there's no. There really is no biblical precedence for it. You preach the truth to every culture, and you don't capitulate to what they want to hear and what they think is important. We have good news to proclaim. News is to be believed or disregarded. Okay, it you you don't sit there and say, well, how do I make the good news more relevant to uh, you know uh, this this particular subculture culture of left-handed leftists who enjoy mocha lattes? You know, they're not interested in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then you move on. Jesus literally, you know, what did Jesus instruct his disciples to do when they went out and they preached the good news, repentance and the forgiveness of sins, uh, repent and believe the gospel? Jesus says if you blow into a town, that was not the term he used, but when you go into a town, if they don't listen to you, what do you do? Do you sit down and do a sociological survey and kind of figure out how to make the message more appealing to the culture? No, Jesus says, go to the edge of the town and shake the dust off your feet. Basically, you know, as a warning against them, you just, we're done here. You don't like it? Okay, we we told you the news. You don't want to hear it? We're not going to come back and beg you to believe it. We're not going to come back and, and try to make the message more palatable for you because, you know, oh, this town over here is full of fishermen, so we have to come up with a way to meet them culturally. And, and this town over here is full of people who like basket weaving, but so we got to make it culturally relevant to them. No, the message already applies to all of humanity. Repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, super simple. 
it doesn't need to be really doesn't need any help at all culturally you go and you proclaim this good news and if people don't want to listen so what shake the dust off your feet let god sort them out at the end move on and find somebody who will listen to the message anyway so I, anyway but i'm really glad to see that the uh, this uh, confess these confessing anglicans are going to hold their ground and uh, basically say enough is enough. And what are they going to do? They're going to preach the historic Christian faith. And they, I think these guys want to take back uh, Anglicanism from the liberals. Oh, boy, I hope they do it. Man, I hope they do it. All right, when we come back from our first break, we're going to be uh, looking at this story. Uh, apparently, they've found King David's palace in Jerusalem, much to the um, embarrassment of uh, liberal theologians, so you, you're going to want to hear, you know, hear hear this story, and then we're going to ask the question: What is being taught at Rob? What was being taught at Rob Bell's Poets, Prophets, and Preachers conference uh, by a guy by the name of Shane Hips? Uh, I'll tell you this: It ain't Orthodox Christianity. I have no idea what it was, but it ain't Orthodox Christianity. It's something, well, completely different so you don't want to miss that uh, so stay with us through the break um if you'd like to email me you can talk back at fightingforthefaith.com look me up on facebook my name is chris roseborough or you can uh, follow me on twitter my name there is pirate christian we'll be right back If you think God is a black woman named Papa, then you need to get out of the shack and read your Bible. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. It's Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. My name is Rex, and if you study with my eight-week program, you will learn a self-feeder system that I developed over two seasons of preaching in the Octagon. It's called Rex Quan Do. I need a volunteer to come up here and show that they trust me. I'm here. Okay, you'll do. Come up here. Bow to your pastor. Bow to your pastor! Okay, now I'm going to give you one chance. One chance, people. Turn around. Turn around. All right. Now fall back and I'll catch you. Ow. That was pretty good. Now, listen, everybody. The reason why he fell was because he didn't have enough faith. Go sit down. Okay, when I fall, I fall in slow motion every time. Now, in addition to what you just saw, if you study with my eight-week program, you're going to learn these things. First off, in Rex Kwando, we use the buddy system. No more reading the Bible solo. You need somebody watching your back at all times. Second off, you're going to learn to discipline your image. You think I got where I am today because I dress like Peter Pan here? Take a look at what I'm wearing, people. Bible pants. Yeah, you have to be pretty righteous to rock these babies. Do you think anybody wants a roundhouse kick to the face while I'm wearing these bad boys? Forget about it. Last off, my students will learn how to walk on water, heal babies, raise the dead, and be extreme. Now, for only one $300 seat offering, you can sign up right now for my eight-week program here at Guts Church.
Orthodox Christianity clearly teaches God's law, which condemns our sinful nature, and clearly proclaims the gospel of Christ's death and resurrection on our behalf to pay for our sinfulness. These truths of Holy Scripture are timeless and objective. However, a creeping fog known as the emergent church threatens to unravel these clear teachings by redefining the vocabulary and core beliefs of the Christian faith in terms of subjective personal feelings and experiences. That is why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to offer The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity, a book by Bob DeWay that is widely regarded as the best book available on the emergent heresy. The book is $12.95 plus $4 shipping and handling, and all proceeds directly support the Christ-centered ministry of Pirate Christian Radio. Log on today to piratechristianradio.com and order your copy of The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity. You are listening to Fighting for the Faith. That's right. We're sending out our pirate signal to the world. Orthodox Christianity is alive and well. And we're not laying down and dying and going anywhere. We're fighting back. All right. I want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. Uh, that means your financial support is critical, vital, um, necessary, uh, <laughs> Uh, it's it's all of that and more uh, for us to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. You can support us a couple of ways. You can visit FightingForTheFaith.com and uh, click on one of our friendly yellow donate buttons. Yeah, that's right. Friendly yellow donate buttons. You'll see them. They're friendly. It's, we wanted them to be friendly. And it allows you to uh, send your gift in instantly, securely online. Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, uh, you liberals out there who have been telling us for years that uh, King David was a myth, you know, um, you got some splaining to do. Uh, Here's a a story from AISH.com, H.com, entitled Reclaiming Biblical Jerusalem. Uh, subhead. This is by Rachel Ginsburg. The subhead reads: "The world of archaeology is rocked by evidence of King David's palace unearthed in Jerusalem." In Jerusalem. Why is the world of archaeology rocked? It seems like every single person who's been out there making outlandish claims that the Bible doesn't know what it's talking about, it's mythology, this town didn't exist, or these this people group didn't exist. Somebody goes out there with a shovel and proves them wrong. I'm telling you, the shovel has been the best friend of Christianity for the for literally the last hundred, few hundred years. You know, when will these knuckleheads learn? You know that the Bible is not mythology; it is history. These things actually took place, and it's inerrant. It's an it's the inspired word of God. Anyway, sorry, you got me on my high horse on that one, so I apologize. Let me read the story here. Uh, How Jewish is Jerusalem? You might think that's a silly question, but in the world of academia, mm -hmm, revisionist history and even biblical archaeology, scholars have cast the shadow of doubt over Judaism's intrinsic connection with Jerusalem. Yeah, you can add to that list Muslims, too. I mean, they don't want people going out there and digging up stuff that shows that the Jews should be living in Israel. 
the Muslim uh, Waqf, the, the religious authority that administers the Temple Mount, uh, the site of Judaism's first and second temples, has been claiming for years that there was never a temple there. You know, that's funny. Um, by the way, did you know that there's a very simple, and I mean ridiculously simple, way of disproving that one? Now, I call this archaeology using other people's vacation photos. Now, <laughs> you know, work with me here. If, if you haven't been there, it's easy to get a hold of this. You go to a website like Flickr.com and uh, type in uh, Arch of Titus. That's right, the Arch of Titus. Okay, and you're thinking, Arch of Titus? Now, those of you who know what the Arch of Titus is, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Okay, history tells us that the Romans um, attacked and defeated uh, the Jews uh, around 70 AD, and that they they basically laid siege to Jerusalem, and they sacked, and I mean sacked Jerusalem, and plundered it, including they absconded with, the Romans absconded with uh, the, um, the implements, the, the, the tools that were being used inside of the, the Jewish temple, Herod's temple. Now, as much as the Muslims would like to tell you that uh, there was no temple there, they're lying to you. Now, here's the funny thing. The Romans sack Jerusalem. Uh, they b burned down the temple. I mean, they threw the temple down, basically, but they absconded with all the uh, artifacts of the temple, you know, including the, the shofar and, and the... Uh, and, and, and the, uh, the uh, anyway, it's a whole list of things. You know, the candle with the the menorah, the all that stuff. Okay, and then they brought it to Jerusalem, and they paraded. Uh, they had a victorious parade, whereby they showed the Romans the the stuff that they took out of the Jewish temple. Now, funny enough, that particular processional is captured in relief on the inside of the Arch of Titus in Rome. It still stands to this day, and you can see very clearly all of the different artifacts of the Jewish temple uh, clearly portrayed as being paraded through Rome uh, you know, shortly after 70 AD in the destruction of the, the, uh, the temple in Jerusalem. Now, if the, um, if the temple never existed uh, in Jerusalem, uh, first or second temple, and wasn't on the temple... Then uh, where did the Romans get these um, uh, artifacts from the temple? I mean, even the Roman historians tell us that they were from the temple, the Jewish temple. So the Muslims have a have some splaining to do there themselves. And uh, by the way, uh, the uh, the Romans uh, did this long before uh, the Prophet Muhammad ever walked the earth. Okay, by what seven hundred and fifty years. So they didn't have any political axes to grind regarding. And by the way, they the Romans are the ones who kicked the Jews out of uh, out of uh, Israel anyway. You know, they they basically that was it. They were gone as a as a people group. They got scattered to the four winds. It was the Romans who kicked the Jews out. Anyway, so you want to easily prove it? Look up the Arch of Titus using other people's vacation photos. They're wonderful. There's some really nice six, seven, eight, ten megapixel pictures of the Arch of Titus there in Rome that people take while they're on vacation, put them out there for the world to see. You want to see what it looks like? I'm telling you, again, it's simple, really simple to prove. And I uh, just want to throw that little tidbit out there for you. I'm off on a tangent. Let me continue reading. 
Okay, so... All right, so the Muslim Waqf, uh, the religious authority that administers the Temple Mount, the site of Judaism's first and second temples, has been claiming for years there was never a temple there. They're wrong. They're lying. But the idea that it, uh, that Israel is the historic homeland of the Jewish people in Jerusalem, its holy capital, has been under attack from far more reputable sources in recent decades as well. Well, if you consider liberal scholars to be reputable sources... Anyway, I consider them to be about as honest as Muslim scholars. We continue. For a growing number of academics and intellectuals, King David and his United Kingdom of Judah and Israel, which has served for 3,000 years as an integral symbol of the Jewish nation, is simply a piece of fiction. Uh, the biblical account of history has been dismissed as unreliable by a cadre of scholars, some of whom have an overtly political agenda, arguing that the traditional account was resurrected by the Zionists to justify dispossessing Palestinian Arabs. The most outspoken of these is Keith Whitelam of the uh, Copenhagen School, which promotes the, an agenda of biblical minimalism, whose best-known work is The Invention of, the, of Ancient Israel, The Silencing of Palestinian History. Fink, Finkelstein claims that the myth of, the, of King David was the creation of a cult of priests trying to create for themselves a glorious history. Oh, boy. <laughs> Even in Israel, this new school has found its voice. Israel Finkelstein, chairman uh, of Tel Aviv University's Department of Archaeology, began championing a theory several years ago that the biblical accounts of Jerusalem as the seat of, of a powerful unified monarchy under the rule of David and Solomon are essentially false. The scientific methods for his assumptions, called a lower dating, uh, uh, which essentially pushes archaeological evidence into a later century and thus erases all evidence of a Davidic monarchy. Yeah, that's a little historical shell and pea game. Uh, we, here's what you do. You basically say, David didn't exist during the, these years. Um, if you, the, this monarchy, if it did exist at all, is supposed to be in these years, and you date it 100 years later, so everyone's looking in the wrong place. It's It's... Unbelievable. What does this Bible say about people suppressing the truth because of their wickedness? <clears throat> Perfect example of it. Here we go. So, all right. So, archaeological evidence to a later century and thus erase the evidence of Davidic market were laughed off by traditional archaeologists. But his book, the, Bibic, the Bible Unearthed, wound up on the New York Times bestseller list and he became the darling of a sympathetic media. He concluded that David and Solomon, if they existed at all, were merely hill country chieftains and Jerusalem a poor small tribal village. He claims that the myth of King David was the creation of a cult of priests trying to create for themselves a glorious history. Oh boy. Um, we continue. Um, but the debunkers of Jewish biblical history got some bad news recently when a spunky, dedicated archaeologist began her latest dig. Dr. Uh, Elat Mazar, a world authority on Jerusalem's past, has taken King David out of the pages of the Bible and put him back into living history. Mazar's latest excavation in the city of David in the southern shadow of the Temple Mount has shaken up the archaeological world. For lying undisturbed for over 3,000 years is a massive building which Mazar believes is King David's palace. For Mazar, 48, one of the world's leading authorities on the archaeology of ancient Jerusalem and head archaeologist of the Shalem Center Institute of Archaeology, 
The discovery was the culmination of years of effort and solid speculation. From the time she was a teenager, she had her nose in archaeology literature and worked closely with her grandfather, renowned archaeologist Benjamin Mazar, who conducted the southern wall excavations uh, next to the western wall. She holds a doctorate in archaeology from Hebrew University, is author of the complete guide to the Temple Mount excavations, and in the 1970s and 80s worked on the digs supervised by Yigal Shiloh in the city of David. The significant discoveries made then, including a huge wall uh, called the Stepped Stone Structure, which Shiloh believed was uh, a retaining wall for David's royal palace or part of the Jebusite fortress he conquered, ignited Mazar to continue to look for the prize, David's palace itself. Some biblical scholars gave up looking for the palace because, according to Mazar, they were looking in the wrong place. Scholars searched for remains of the palace within the walls of the ancient Jebusite city that David conquered and called Ir Ir David, the city of David. This city, while heavily fortified with both natural and man-made boundaries, was also very small and nine acres in size. When no evidence of such a majestic palace as the Bible describes was found there, the next step was to claim that David's monarchy never really existed. But Mazar always suspected that the palace was outside the original city and cities the Bible uh, and, and cites the Bible to prove it. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed, they went on the attack and uh, to apprehend him. This occurred after he conquered uh, the fortress of Zion, which is the actual nucleus of the city, and built his palace. Uh, the Bible says that David heard about it and descended to the fortress, Second Samuel 5.17, implying that he went down from his palace, which was higher up on the mountain than the, uh, the citadel city. Mazar told H.com, I've always asked myself, down from where? It must have been from his palace on top of the hill, outside of the original Jebusite city. Mazar says she was confident in her assessment of where the palace would be. What she discovered was a section of massive wall of a massive wall running about a hundred feet from west to east along the length of the excavation underneath what until the summer was Ear David Visitor Center and ending with a right angle corner that turns south and implies a very large building. Within the dirt filled uh, the dirt filled between the stones were found pottery shards dating to the 11th century BC, the time when David established his monarchy. Based on biblical text and historical evidence, Mazar assumed that David would have built his palace outside the walls of the fortified but cramped Jebusite city, which existed up to 2,000 years before. And in fact, the structure is built on the summit of the mountain directly on the bedrock along the city's northern edge with no archaeological layers beneath it, a sign that the structure uh, constituted a new northward expansion of the city's northern limits. Quote, I was shocked at how easy it was to uncover it and how well preserved it was, as if it were just waiting 3,000 years for us to find it. What most amazed Mazar was how close the buildings the building is to the surface, just one to two meters underground. The cynics kept saying, there will be so many layers, so many remnants of other cultures. It's not worth digging. It's too far down. I was shocked at how easy it was to uncover it and how well preserved it was, as if it were just waiting 3,000 years for us to find it. 
Mazar snickers at the idea that she is some sort of divine emissary revealing the eternity of David's kingdom. I'm a scientist, not a philosopher. My focus is on how magnificent and enduring these complex structures are, and they were preserved and protected for so many, so many generations. In truth, when I began to excavate, I had to be prepared for any result. I even had to be prepared to accept Finkelstein's hypothesis uh, if that's what the facts indicated. Still, I'm a Jew and an Israeli, and I feel great joy when the details on the ground match the descriptions in the Bible. Today, it's become fashionable to say there was no David, no Solomon, no temple, no prophets. But suddenly, the facts on the ground are speaking, and those outspoken voices are stammering. Interesting, huh? There's much, much more to the story, by the way. I'll, I'll uh, tweet it out so that you can read it. It's like six pages long. And I love it. Why? Because, again, <clears throat> this, from, from a Christian point of view, this is not shocking news. Why is this not shocking news? Real simple. Jesus Christ, who is God in human flesh, and proved it by raising himself from the dead three days after he was crucified under the Roman governor Pontius Pilate. Okay? Jesus Christ, who is God in human flesh, spoke of David as if David was a historical person. Never once did Jesus act like David was some kind of mythological character invented by uh, priests who were trying to rewrite history to make it sound like they had a more glorious past. No, none at all. In fact, D Jesus himself is a descendant of David. According to the flesh, according to his physical body he is a direct descendant of king david and he is the one who will ascend to david's throne and sit on that throne forever and ever jesus christ who is god in human flesh and proved it by raising himself from the dead never once wavered regarding his opinion of david and even acted like he knew the guy so this shouldn't come as a shock so basically what it comes down to is what's happened here jesus and the Bible have been vindicated again by the evidence. Christianity is not a religion that tells you to take a blind leap of faith into the darkness. No, not at all. Christianity, in fact, has a religious truth claim that basically states that if Jesus Christ has not been raised from the dead, then Christianity is not true and you shouldn't believe it. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So Christianity has nothing to fear, nothing whatsoever to fear from scientific and factual inquiry. In fact, some of the best scholars in the world are the ones who deal with biblical facts and evidence. These are scholars and apologists who really really understand what the evidence shows, and they don't flee from it. They know exactly what to do for, do with it and show over and over and over and over again. The Bible can be trusted. Why? Because it is the inerrant, inspired word of God. How do I know? Because Jesus Christ himself put his stamp of approval on it, and he rose from the dead three days after he was crucified by Pilate. His resurrection from the dead proves definitively 
that he is who he claimed to be, the one true God in human flesh, come to save us, come to rescue us, come to redeem us, to die for our sins on the cross, and to set us free from sin, death, and the devil. And he is, he is the son of David. He is the one who will sit on the throne of David forever. So we can thank uh, Dr. Eliot Mazar for her tenaciousness and trusting the biblical text to lead her to <laughs> none other than the palace of the non-existent King David, if you listen to uh, the Finkelstein group. But again, what will happen to these liberals? Will they change their mind and say, well, we've been proven wrong. The evidence is cleared. There was a King David. The Bible can be trusted. We repent. Not on your life. They, the, These liberal scholars will just consider this to be uh, a vexing setback. A vexing... All right, so what if he existed? Who cares? Doesn't prove anything about God. No, nah, it doesn't prove nothing. So what? All right, so, okay, so every time somebody has gone against the Bible and its archaeological claims, somebody would takes a shovel into Israel and proves them wrong over and over and over again. The, the list of people, of, of liberal scholars, who are littering the battlefield of truth is, is overwhelming. The list is huge. But do you think these liberal scholars will change their mind? No, and why? The, the, that's the better question. Why? Why? Because by nature, every human being is born sinful, born rebellious, born hating God. They don't love God. They hate God. They want, they want, they don't want to have nothing to do with the one true God. They, they've got it out for them. They're not passively hating him. They're actively hating him. And this comes out when people go and get PhDs and then end up using their academic credentials to go and attack the scriptures. Over and over and over again, these people have been shown to be false, their theories to be empty and stupid. Yet, there's always a brand new crop of liberal theologians who hate God in the name of Christianity, in the name of religion, want to set the record straight and free the world from, from the tyranny of the literal and, and uh, say, listen, you know, this King David guy, just a mythological character. Yeah, that, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah, that we don't even know where Sodom is, where we found it. Ah, well, well, okay, it doesn't matter. That doesn't mean that God destroyed it. You see what I'm saying? Anyway. So I'll I'll tweet out the uh, and I'll put a link up to this great article by the great article. All right, when we come back from our second break, we're going to ask the question: um, What was being taught at Rob Bell's just concluded poets, prophets, and preachers conference by his good buddy Shane Hips? What was being taught by Shane Hips? Yeah, this is. Um, well, we're going to find out. Thankfully, there was a gentleman who was live blogging there, and uh, we're going to be taking a look at his notes at what Shane Hips was saying and ask ourselves the simple question, is this biblical Christianity or is this something else? Well, if you've listened to this program for any amount of time, 
the chances are very good that it's, you know, well, something else. <laughs> All right, we'll be right back. If you'd like to email me, you can uh, talk back at fightingforthefaith.com or ask to be my friend on Facebook or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there is Pirate Christian. We send out subversive microblogging tweets on a regular basis. Fun stuff. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Orthodox Christianity clearly teaches God's law, which condemns our sinful nature, and clearly proclaims the gospel of Christ's death and resurrection on our behalf to pay for our sinfulness. These truths of Holy Scripture are timeless and objective. However, a creeping fog known as the emergent church threatens to unravel these clear teachings by redefining the vocabulary and core beliefs of the Christian faith in terms of subjective personal feelings and experiences. That is why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to offer The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity, a book by Bob DeWay that is widely regarded as the best book available on the emergent heresy. The book is $12.95 plus $4 shipping and handling, and all proceeds directly support the Christ-centered ministry of Pirate Christian Radio. Log on today to piratechristianradio.com and order your copy of The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity. Love that new commercial spot done for us by a listener by the name of Scott Gherkin. In the background there, that music is a hymn called, Lord, Keep Us Steadfast in Your Word. Great hymn, by the way. Hang on, I'm pulling up my hymnal. I'm going to see if I can find this real quick. Lord. Let's see here. All right, there it is. It's hymn 655. Bear with me for a second here. Uh, Great lyrics, by the way. It's a good prayer for the church. Timely. um, Listen to these lyrics from this hymn. By the way, I'm not into praise music. Why? Because you're not not singing about nothing but yourself. If that, you know, seven words uh, repeated 11 times, give me a break. All right, listen to this stuff. Lord, keep us steadfast in your word. Curb those who by deceit or sword would wrest the kingdom from your son and bring to naught all that he has done. Lord, keep your power. uh, Lord Jesus Christ, your power make known for you are Lord of lords alone. Defend your holy church that we may sing your praise eternally. O comforter of priceless worth, send peace and unity on earth. Support us in our final strife and lead us out of death to life. Oh, love that hymn. <laughs> Scott, got to tell you, good pick there. Good pick. All right. <laughs> We're back, by the way. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. Uh, straight ahead here. And we've, so tomorrow, I, I'm looking at our time here. We're definitely not going to get to the Massachusetts Bible Society story. We're going to have to do that tomorrow. But here's the question that's on the table currently for this segment. Um, What was being taught at Rob Bell's 
Poets, Prophets, and Preachers Conference that just finished up or wrapped up yesterday. Uh, one of the speakers, whom Rob Bell says was the guy who was going to, quote, bring the thunder. That's a, that's a direct quote from Rob Bell on his website. Um, a guy by the name of Shane Hips, who is a pastor, a Mennonite pastor. Hang on a second here. I subscribed to his podcast earlier today. Um, it was at Trinity Mennonite Church. Shane Hips is the uh, pastor there. And uh, it's a missional urban Anabaptist congregation. And Shane Hips... Uh, gave one of the the lectures at the um, Poets, Prophets, and Preachers conference that was put on by Rob Bell and sponsored by none other than Zondervan Publishing, which leads to the question, what is a Christian publisher like Zondervan uh, doing promoting this stuff? And what by, by what stuff do I mean? Well, listen to this. The other day, uh, Shane Hips at the Poets, Prophets, and Preachers Conference, uh, put on by Rob Bell at Mars Hill Church there in Grab Rapids, uh, gave a um, very interesting, very interesting, uh, did I mention it was interesting, um, lecture on, well, the best way I could describe this topic is to basically say this sounds like it was something directly from the Twilight Zone. You unlock this door with the key of imagination. Beyond it is another dimension. A dimension of sound. A dimension of sight. A dimension of mind. You're moving into a land of both shadow and substance, of things and ideas. You've just crossed over into... The, the emergent zone. That's right. Twilight zone. All right, so he, he, here are the notes from Shane Hipp's uh, lecture. Uh, this this segment is entitled, The Medium is the Message. We'll just do a little critical work here. I'm going to read the notes from one of the attenders who, who had the uh, was nice enough to live blog this for us. And Shane Hip asked the question, well, it says, Who we are, you and I are as a person, is ultimately the message. Have you ever heard somebody say that you're the message? You You are the message? That, that's a popular myth that's running around, quote, Christian circles nowadays. Uh, the problem is, is that, no, you and I are not the message. We're the messengers. Okay. Now, so here's the deal. I am not the message. The message is repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name to all nations. That's the message. Repentance and the forgiveness of sins. The good news that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and raised from the dead three days according to the scriptures. Okay, right? After three days. So we aren't the message. We're the messengers. So Shane Hips leads off with this ever so popular piece of pablum that says that we are the message. No, we are not. If I was the message of Christianity, what a miserably rotten message that would be. Why? Because well, I'm a miserably rotten and wretched sinner. Me being the message? Oh, good night. If I were the message, Christianity has no hope. You might as well pack up your bags and go home. You know, if I, if you're the message, same thing. Give me a break. You're a sinner. We're not the message. We're the messengers. I, I, don't you love how these postmodern guys, language means nothing. 
Anyway, so we continue with Shane Hips. Uh, not just words, who I am is the message. No, no, we're not. We're going to explore the medium of the human being. This is, this is from Shane Hips. First, we have a body. Don't underestimate the power of a body. God himself embodied. Our bodies are a powerful medium and have three different aspects of the human being, physical, energetic, and essential. So apparently there's three important aspects of a human being. Those are the, that's the physical aspect, the energetic aspect, and the essential aspect. You can hear me asking the question. I might as well ask it. Where's this found in the Bible? We continue. So according to Shane Hips, the physical aspect of humanity is everything that's physical about us. The energetic aspect that this is the part that this this is the part that can't measure and interact with our five senses. The sensation going on, warm, radiant, open, expansive, vast of anger, love, sadness, creativity, sexual, mental processes, presence. And these energies need to be cultivated because they can atrophy. People have varying footprint sizes of that energy. For instance, uh, Rob Bell versus uh, Shane Hips. People experience those energies differently. Now, the essential aspect is the deepest part of who we are, and it's very different than the two. Uh, this one is unchanging. It is unlimited, open, boundless, f- always free. Nothing you can do to develop and expand. The only thing that changes is access to it. What changes is people's awareness of their essence. What does that mean? Hello? Hey, McFly. Hey, you in there? He gives an example. Uh, Shane Hip says, example, Mother Teresa had an ordinary body, uh, charisma slash energy, but lived in this place of fearlessly, endlessly giving her life away, lived with the same thing God was made of, same DNA of the divine. Mother Teresa had the same DNA of the divine? Okay. Um, When you know you are made of the same stuff of God, you are free, according to Shane Hips. Let me read that again. When you know that you are made of the same stuff of God, you are free. Where does it say that in the Bible again? We continue. When you live in your essence, uh, when you live in your essence, it is the gesture of the spirit, waves on the same ocean, wide, open, free, unchanging. You are one with God. Listen to this. Jesus developed mastery over the physical body through fasting, celibacy, carpentry. What? He says that Jesus developed mastery over his physical body through fasting, celibacy, Carp and carpentry, and he mastered energy by transmitting energy by healing, channeled anger to overturn tables, and new energy went from him when he was touched on the cloak. Uh, Jesus also mastered essence. I'm quoting here from Shane Hips, by the way. Uh, Jesus mastered essence. He had a commitment to develop access and awareness of essence as as us. I don't even know what that means. His conviction, Jesus' essence and ours is not different. He just came to help us access it and to be aware of it and to develop it. 
So according to Shane Hips, Jesus came to earth to help us access, uh, become aware of our essence and to access it and develop it. I just asked the simple question here. Uh, call me a plebe. Call me a, just a closed-minded fundamentalist if you want. Call me one of those stupid confessional Lutherans. Whatever you're, you want to label me as, go right ahead. But the question still stands. Where is this taught in the Bible? Where in the scriptures do we have one single shred of valid, objective evidence that says that Jesus came to help us access our essence and become aware of it and develop it? We continue. Shane Hips also said at the at Rob Bell's Poets, Prophets, and Preachers conference, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Deep mastery of his essence. Why about essence? Body is land. Energy is ocean. Essence is the sky. I'm not making this up. I, I'm t- these, are, these are direct notes from direct quotes here. Let's see if I've got this straight. Um, deep mastery of essence. Why about body is land. Energy is ocean. Essence is the sky. Cannot pierce or stab the sky. Only dwelling from this place can you dwell in infinite peace. When you dwell in forgiveness, it is inevitable to be in the essence. What on earth is this? We continue. By the way, practices. He taught practices that will help you uh, mastering your energy and your essence. So here's number one, a practice regarding energy or practice of energy. First, understand that the physical is the conductor of energy of the energetic body, like copper conducts electricity. How posture, how posturing body kinks the hose and hinders God's divine energy from conducting. What? Okay, so the the physical is the conductor of the energetic body and like copper conducts electricity. Your posture, your body posture can kink the hose and hinder God's divine energy from conducting. So if you those of you who uh, have bad body remember you know when you were a kid and you were you you had bad body posture, you know, you were slouching over your desk or something like that. Or maybe you were sitting too close to the television and you and you weren't really you didn't have good body posture and your mom would say to you, you know, step you know sit back from the television. You're too close. Or if you keep slouching like that, you're gonna end you're gonna slouch like that for the rest of your life. Well, according to Shane Hips, um, when he was teaching at Rob Bell's uh, poets, preachers, and prop, prop, uh, poets, prophets, and preachers conference. He made the claim that uh, your body posture can hinder God's divine energy, just like a, a, a hose can kink, you know, can kink up and prevent water. So, um, so he says, realize that we are imita- imitative creatures. So the energy you bring with you to the pulpit will be sent to those in the community. So in order to help them with this, so practices of energy that you can engage in, then that will help you are yoga, tai chi. And Tai Chi, you can use these to retrain your body to unkink God's energy. I am not making this up. How is it that this is the crap that was being taught 
in the name of Christianity. We continue. Sorry, I'm getting a little upset. <clears throat> okay, uh, number two, practice of essence. So here's a practice of essence. You can develop techniques to uncover our essence. Most are silence and solitude. Important to remember the essence is something you must eat and know, not read about and believe in. Big difference between believing and knowing. Where does it say in the scripture that uh, our essence is something that we eat and know? This is not Christianity. This sounds like Eastern meditation and, and Hinduism and Buddhism all thrown in. There's no... Oh, man, this is... We continue. <clears throat> Okay, so essence is something you must eat and know, not read and believe about and believe in. Big difference between believing and knowing. Ways to taste our essence. Ways to taste our essence. So here's ways that you can taste your essence. Uh, through breath. Funny, when I'm breathing sometimes, I can almost taste an authentic Mexican burrito. Sorry. Uh, so ways to taste your essence through breath. Breathe, uh, breath and spirit are one and the same. Ancient language attests to this. We have separated two things never intended to be separate. Every time we see spirit in the scriptures, we can replace it with breath. If you want to know what God is really like, contemplate the nature of your breath. You've got to be kidding me. Really? That is just the most profoundly stupid and dumb interpretation of the, of the Greek word for spirit that I've ever seen in my life in your, in your essence is a place of unending peace. Really? Where does it say that uh, Shane? Um, where does it say in the scriptures that our essence is a place of unending peace? Hang on a second. Yep. That, yeah, that, that definitely smells like horse manure. With a little bit of sulfur. Yep. And, and a little bit of dog poo, too. Mm -hmm. All right. All right. Continuing. In your essence is a place of unending peace. You will always have it, no matter what happens. You will always have it. It is the source of wisdom and compassion. Our goal should be to cultivate our connection to our essence in order to help people connect with God. You have got to be kidding me. This, this is... May we all continue to open ourselves, energy and essence, to experience God, to better conduct God's divine light in the world. Uh, these are the notes taken from Rob Bells, who's supposed to be a Christian author. Rob Bells, Poets, Prophets, and Preachers Conference that just concluded in Grand Rapids. This is not Christianity. This is Eastern mysticism. This is not you believe this stuff you are you are off the Christian reservation you are now off-roading into other religions and this is not Christianity nor is it even compatible with any of the truth claims of Christianity and by the way you disagree with me then go and get your bible and show me from the scriptures where Jesus taught any of this stuff where the apostles taught any of this stuff where the prophets taught any of this stuff or where Moses taught any of this stuff from the book of genesis to the book of maps you will not find any of this garbage in there this is not christianity rob bell now is openly allowing and teaching 
heresy and Eastern religions, false religions at his so-called church that up there in Grand Rapids. This man is a dangerous threat to Christianity and Zondervan needs to cut him loose and say, no way, we have to stay by the truth. This is not Orthodox Christianity. Rob Bell, I don't, we don't care how much money we're making from this guy. We've got to cut him, got to cut him loose and, and basically reprimand him and rebuke him. This is not Christianity. This is panentheistic, Hinduistic, Eastern crap. This is not Christianity. Oh, man. Got myself worked up there. Uh, our prayers go out to the folks there at Mars Hill. They are being deceived in the highest order of deception. Anybody who would defend Rob Bell and Shane Hips and these group at, uh, as being Christian at this point do not know what the Bible says or teaches. They don't have a have a clue about what Jesus, who Jesus is, and what He's done for us on the cross. This is ridiculous, unbelievable. All right. Well, we're going to switch gears one more time here. <clears throat> I, I better do it before I blow a gasket. <laughs> oh, man. I cannot believe that is what – by the way, I'll, I'll post a link of, uh, at Twitter so that you can actually see the source for these notes. I did not make this up. Those are notes that were blogged live from somebody attending the conference, the Poets, Prophets, and Preachers Conference – Put on by Rob Bell, and Rob Bell spoke very highly of Shane Hips prior to the conference and said that Shane was going to be bringing the thunder. He didn't bring thunder. He brought the scubalon. Greek word there. Look it up if you don't know what it means. Okay. Time to, uh, <clears throat> all right, officially, <clears throat> we got we to gotta do this before, I, like I said, before I blow a gasket. Okay, it's time to play our, uh, our sermon review music. It's from The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Here we go. Uh, there it is. The good, the bad, the ugly. Now, today's uh, sermon is not a sermon. It's a lecture. The uh, plenary uh, speech given by uh, the Reverend Stephen Furtick, Charlotte, North Carolina, Elevation Church. is is the church where he teaches at. Kind of a rock star among the church planner guys and the purpose-driven guys. And the reason I'm playing this particular lecture is because it's a perfect example of how not to interpret God's Word. It, it, you do not allegorize. Not good. Es no bueno. Es mucho malo malo. Very bad. You know, I, I'm not so good on the Spanish. Anyway, I right, kill that music, will you? Thank you. All right. So, it's... Huh. All right, so this is uh, Stephen Furtick from the Evolve Conference back in 2008. I was there when he delivered this. Got to tell you, this kid a, is a gifted, um, a gifted speaker. He's engaging. He is, he he's, he is a fantastic public speaker. And what you're going to hear is not even to give him do him justice. Okay, he's talented. The problem is, is that he's not so gifted in the Bible interpretation thing. So I want you to hear this lecture and pay close attention to how he's using Scripture. This is all about um, what he calls sun stand still prayers. Uh, here's uh, Pastor Furtick.
Everybody that's clapping for me on the front row or on my staff, I pay them to do that, and that's why I brought them with me. So um, that's what the applause was about. And uh, I just want to honor my staff real quick. They travel and support me a lot. These are some of our directional staff guys. Would you guys stand up real quick and do a curtsy and wave and all that? A few over there, too. And uh, it's kind of a milestone being here today. Um, um, one of the first church plants I ever heard about really, Sean, was, where's Sean? I thought that was you. Um, was Sean Lovejoy. And first of all, I was, I really liked his name. I was like, Lovejoy, this must be like one of the nicest guys in the world. Lo- how could you not be with a name like Lovejoy? And, um, I was hearing about the faith that he had to, uh, to reach into a community that had never really seen anything like this and trust God for big things. Um, I, I love your heart. When he came back to pray with me before I came out, he, uh, he prayed for you guys as if he knew each and every one of you. It was, it was pretty amazing to see his heart that uh, this isn't just an event to him and uh, to see that he, he, he really wants to see your spirits lifted and your hearts encouraged and so it's an honor to be a part of that today, man of God. And your sermon was excellent on being a healthy leader. I, I thought that was phenomenal, man. And thank you for saying those things. It'd be all right if I preached the Bible for a minute. I don't have a whole lot of this wisdom, you know. From 25 years of ministry, I've learned I've only been alive 27 years. And I turn 28 tomorrow. And... Um, I mean, you don't have to clap or anything, but you could send a gift or whatever. Um, I'm going to be in Joshua chapter 10 for the next few minutes. I only want to read two verses of scripture, but before I do, let me set this up. A few months ago at our church, we did a series that had an incredible impact on our congregation. It was very meaningful to us. It was a series about faith. And the title of the series was Sun Stand Still. And it was based on this passage of Scripture. It's a semi-recognized miracle in the Scriptures, not one of your big ten that gets talked about a lot. But it's pretty spectacular. And the reason it was so meaningful to our church is that we can relate to it because it records an incident in human history where God did a whole lot of stuff in a little bit of time. And our church can relate to that, and I'll share that with you in just a moment. Um, a picturesque example of courageous leadership. One of the broadest, most bombastic examples of... Notice already he's laying the groundwork here. This is, by the way, how you you do not read Scripture this way. ...of courageous leadership. Hang on. You don't read the Bible this way. Yeah, we can relate to this because, you know, this this was our theme verse and God was doing this and our, you got to be careful here. We continue in the entire scripture. And the Bible says that Joshua, as he was fighting his enemies one day, sized up the situation and needed a great miracle from God. And I've just got to believe that that's part of what pulled you away to be here today is that you're desperate for the miracle-working, supernatural, unexplainable power of God in your ministry and in your life. And I might not know... What? He's speaking to a group of 
seeker-driven, purpose-driven church planters a whole lot about experience and budgets. I might not know a whole lot about living life with teenage kids. I might not know a whole lot of the things that you could teach me about. But I really do think that I can speak with authenticity to the need for courageous leadership in the church. The courage that only God can provide. And I want to go ahead and read these scriptures or I will not be anywhere near my time limit. So check this out today. Can we do something old-fashioned and stand in honor of the word of God today? The Bible says in Joshua chapter 10 verse 12, On the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel, Joshua said to the Lord in the presence of Israel, O sun, stand still over Gibeon, O moon, over the valley of Ajalon. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped till the nation avenged itself on its enemies. I know I said I was only going to read two, but I just looked at the other ones and they're so good. I got to read them too. They can't get left out. Verse 13, part B says, The sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down about a full day. There has never been a day like it before or since. A day when the Lord listened to a man. Surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. God, I pray that you would maximize these moments and that the words that are recorded here by the author might be true in our life. That there would never have been a day like this in our lives. Do something remarkable in our hearts. Do something inspiring. Do something inexplicable in our intellects today. And inspire us with the kind of faith that can enable us to be courageous leaders. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you. I'm really old-fashioned. I don't look old-fashioned, but I am. Uh, we're going to stop for a second. He doesn't look old-fashioned at all. He, he looks like a rock star. You know what? We're going to have to go back and we're going to read this passage in context. Okay? Here, what he's doing is he's basically just reading a passage of scripture, using that as some touch point, and then making the claim that God is doing the same thing in our lives, and we need to have we need to do this. Nowhere in scripture are sun stand still prayers the things that are um, prescribed as normative for the Christian faith. Jesus Christ, when his disciples came to him and said, "Lord, teach us to pray." He did not say, well, if you really want to understand how to unleash the power of prayer, then what you need to do is you need to pray big, hairy, audacious prayers like Joshua did um, in Joshua chapter 10 when, when you know, he said, son, stand still. Let's read this passage in context. Why? Because it gives us an opportunity to do some uh, some good Bible teaching. Joshua chapter 10, verse 1. As soon as Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai and all its men were warriors. So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, to Piram, king of Jarmuth, to Japhia, king of Lachish, and to Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me. 
and let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem and the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon, gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp at G- in Gigal, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua, now we're going to stop right here. We're going to point something out here early on in chapter 10. The Lord clearly speaks to Joshua, and he gives him a promise. Again, what is faith? Faith is trust in the promises of God, and ultimately in the one essential promise of God, the promise of the forgiveness of sins, the promise of the pardon of, the, of sins based upon Christ's redeeming sacrifice and His and Him standing as a substitute in our place, being punished by God in our place on the cross. So full and complete pardon, our sins are forgiven because of Christ. You trust in Christ and believe that, you're a Christian. That's too simple. <laughs> no, really, it's not simple at all. Think of what God did. Okay. By the way, the ability to believe that, the faith even to believe that is a gift from God. So here, the Lord is, Joshua, by the way, has faith. Okay. Joshua is a man of faith. So the Lord speaks to Joshua, says, Do not fear, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua then puts his faith into action. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon and chased them by the way of the ascent to Beth Haran and struck them as far as Azak Makedah. And as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth Haran, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were there were uh, more who died because of the hailstones than the son of, uh, of Israel killed with the sword. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the son of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, <clears throat> Son, stand still at Gibeon and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jasher? The sun stopped in the midst of the heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. Okay. Now, who's the story about again? Who did, who fought for Israel? The Lord did. Did the Lord heed the word of Joshua? Yeah. But it wasn't exactly a prayer, was it? No. It just kind of shouted it out. They needed sunlight, and so, you know, but the thing is, is that God is the one who promised that 
they would win the battle. And so God did what it took to deliver on his promise. The Lord is the one who fought for them. Joshua saying that, well, that shows his faith and trust in the Lord. That's kind of the key. And again, faith is a pass-through because faith is only as good as the object of your faith. Okay, So we continue with uh, this lecture here, and I want you to listen carefully. I'm really just a throwback to it. By the way, what's the application from that? Well, it ultimately comes to trust in God. Uh, let's see what happens. To a 1950s preacher who likes to shuck the corn. And when they told me the time limit that I had to preach today, I decided to reduce my outline. I would normally have your typical three points. I'm only going to do two. I want to respect the conference time frame. And Sean said he would kill me if I went over. And so without hesitation or delay, let me share a little bit of the elevation story with you. I'd like to issue a disclaimer. First of all, everybody in my breakout session pretend interested because you already heard this. Okay, got to stop there. I thought he was preaching on this text. He's going to tell us the story of Elevation Church. The story of Elevation Church is not recorded for us in Joshua chapter 10. Notice he just used that as kind of a text to talk about him and his church. That is not how you interpret scripture. And it's not my fault. For the rest of you, what I'm about to share with you may come across like I'm bragging, and I am. I, I want to boast in the Lord a little bit today. What he's done for us, who he's been to us, how he's come through for us. I think it's time that we spoke up and we're not silent anymore about the great things that God has done. As I look around, everybody's bragging about everything. If we can't... You mean like the great thing that God has done by becoming a man, being born of the Virgin Mary, suffering under Pontius Pilate, being crucified, died and buried and raised from the dead three days after he was crucified by Pontius Pilate for our sins and for our transgressions? Those great things? And give God glory in this place. Where can we do it? And so we started our church in 2006 with 121 people at our first worship experience. That really gives you no insight into the... First what? First worship experience? Those two words, I get the feeling they, they really shouldn't be stuck together like that. <clears throat> The beginnings of our church. Really, the reason this miracle is so spectacular to me isn't so much what God did, but the time frame that he accomplished it in. And at Elevation Church, what's so miraculous about our church... And I uh, Notice the, the time frame that God uh, performed the miracle for Joshua. That's the thing that really excites him. Because look at how quickly things happen for them at Elevation Church. See that the verse and, and the, the, the Elevation story, they're just hand in hand. I think what we've seen over the last two years, we just turned two last week, isn't necessarily what God has done, because God does a lot of things in a lot of places. But what seems to be really unique and special about the activity of God in Charlotte, North Carolina, in our church, is that he has done so much in such a short amount of time, which exactly parallels and correlates with the text here, as we find Joshua fighting a battle.
it perfectly correlates with the text? No, the story of Elevation Church does not perfectly whatever with the text. Oh boy, that's that's a problem. And he needs more time to do what God has called him to do, to defeat the enemy. And so he calls on God to perform a miracle that will actually lengthen the day, thereby accelerating the victory. So in other words, God, I'm in a battle, and I need you to freeze time so that you can accomplish more in a day than normally would be accomplished in a day. I need an accelerated victory from you, God. And this is the content of the preaching at Elevation Wait a second. You need an accelerated victory? Um, if he needed an accelerated victory, then why did he ha- basically ask the sun to stand still to lengthen the day? If they needed an accelerated victory, then he would need God to come in and kill these guys quicker. And God did kind of help out there by knocking them down with hailstones. Remember that? Hmm bad interpretation because what's he doing he's trying to shovel he basically squeeze in the story of elevation church into joshua chapter 10 here Uh, but this is not a joshua chapter 10 is not about your church or my church or elevation church it's about what happened to the people of israel in their conquest of canaan they're coming into the promised land Over those two, three weeks of this series, I talked over and over again about God being able to do more in a moment than we in our own effort can accomplish in a lifetime. That God can make the sun stand still in your marriage. And he can repair and reconcile 22 years of strife and bitterness in a moment through his miraculous touch. Or that he can bring back the wayward son who's been on drugs for 14 years away from God. In a moment, God can save that young man and begin the redemption process. And our congregation began to pray, sun stand still prayers. I challenged them, pray something so bold. Pray something. Wait a second. When Jesus told us to pray, he said, say, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. On earth as it is in heaven, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. That's what Jesus said. He didn't say pray some big, hairy, audacious prayer, some sun-stand-still prayer. No, not at all. Something so big. Pray something so stupid. Pray something so silly. Pray something so asinine. Pray something so other than you that only God could accomplish it. And when he gets done doing it in your life, nobody will have any doubt about who was responsible for the result. All right. Here, let me give you the greatest example of that kind of prayer. Ready? Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And as a church, these are the kinds of prayers we've been praying. When I was 16 years old, somebody slid me a copy of a book by Jim. Who is he preaching about right now? God or himself? Jim Cimbala, the pastor of the Brooklyn Tabernacle. The book was called Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire. That book messed me up 
permanently. Never been the same. Freaked me out, turned me upside down. I was a junior in high school, and I know conference speakers make up stuff all the time, but this really happened. You ever hear these stuff these speakers make up? I was on an airplane headed to New York, and the person seated next to me was a lesbian, crack-smoking, you know, ex, you know, and I began to share the gospel with her, and all of a sudden, as I shared the gospel, the light of the gospel began to dawn upon her darkened heart, and she repented out loud, trusted Jesus as her Savior. The pilot heard her praying the sinner's prayer, came from the cockpit back into the cabin, asked, what is this commotion? Dost thou speak of the Christ, the Son of the living God? He gave his life to Christ, returned to the cockpit, turned the plane around, flew it over the rainforest. We descended upon an unreached people group led them to the Lord. You know, it's like, man, so I have no tolerance for that. But um, this really happened to me straight up. I was 16 years old, a junior in high school. I'd been a Christian for about four months. Somebody slipped me a copy of this book. I was just beginning to read it. And on page 23 of that book, there's a sentence that was so pregnant with possibility for me. And I can't describe it to you in any other way than that the Holy Spirit of God interpreted this sentence in my spirit to mean that one day I would start a church in a major metropolitan city somewhere in the United States of America. I had never heard of church planting. I thought that church plants were the ferns that Aunt Jackie put on the stage of the Methodist church when I was a little acolyte. I didn't know about the purpose-driven church, the purpose-driven life, the purpose-driven life for preschoolers, the purpose-driven life for preschoolers with goldfish. I didn't know any of that. All I knew is that God had spoken to my heart. And here was the sentence that summarized the essence of what I believe God was saying to me. Page 23 of the book. I despaired at the thought that my life might pass me by without God moving greatly on my behalf. And so almost 10 years later, I found myself in a place of life surrounded by people. Several of them are here with me today. The first one was a guy named Chunks. He's here somewhere. He's right here. He was a physical therapist on his way to making a good living, retiring early, buying a boat, moving to Florida, 401k in the works. And I came along and screwed all that up. I shared with him the essence of the sentence that I'd read in the book on page 23. I had a spirit of thought my life might pass me by without God moving greatly on my behalf. And you need to despair at the thought that your life might pass you by without God moving greatly on your behalf. And God's called me to start a church, and I don't know where, and I don't know when. This is a great sales pitch, but would you go with me? And that's how our church was started. And um, we headed out in a... <laughs> this, sounds so, this sounds so ghetto, but it was. We headed out in our suburban one night to try to figure out what city we would start the church in. Just started driving with our wives. His was seven months pregnant. Mine was three months pregnant. And there were no hotels in the city of Raleigh that night. We're driving all around the city and we're praying, we're praying that God would give us back our marriages, make the sun stand still and our wife forgive us in our marriages. We're praying that we would know where we're supposed to start this church. We had no clue. We began to assemble a core team. It was all very messy. It was all very sloppy. We were all really experts about church growth principles until we got it started actually growing a church. And God began to do something so supernatural in our hearts. And the next thing we know, we've got a real church and a lot of people but what I want to take you back to today, because that's the part you always hear at the conference. You always hear about the blessing, but how about the backstory? 
See, you always hear about the guy whose church grew really big. But what you don't hear is that Stephen Furtick almost freaked out and lost his mind, almost had a nervous breakdown in February 2006 when I was sitting backstage in a bathroom in Providence High School wondering if anybody other than my mom and dad were going to show up to our first worship experience. Let's talk about that for a minute because all I ever hear is the blessing part. All I ever hear is the payoff. But there's always a process before there's any payoff. And if God has made you a promise about a church that you are to start, the reason that you need the courage of God in your heart and in your spirit, the reason that you need the courage of God to overwhelm your circumstances, situations, and setbacks is because from any promise to the payoff, there's always a costly process. So here's Joshua. And he's made a mistake. And he's fighting a nation that he never should have fought because he made an alliance that he never should have made. And he finds himself helpless and hopeless and time's running out. And so he prays this prayer, this bold prayer, this audacious prayer. If it's all right, I'd like to change the title of the session right now. Just thought of this. Let's don't call it courageous leadership. Let's call it audacious leadership. Because courage is a conviction that is internal. Audacity happens when you act on your courage. It's one thing to feel courageous, to believe courageous things, to say courageous things. But how about when you put yourself out there for the whole nation to see? Hey, go start a church with me. I don't know where. I don't know when. I don't know how we're going to pay for it. You can still work your full-time job and work for me for free. Come on, sign up. And seven families did that. Don't you want to do it too? Nobody really talks about this stuff much at the conferences, at least the conferences I've been to. I'm not some conference speaker. I, I don't know what I'm doing. I am started a church in Charlotte, and I'm out here to share some stuff from my life with you today. But here's the first thing that I want to share. All of that was important too. But this is the first thing that you can actually write down. And this might be the only point we get to. But it's so good. I was sharing this with a friend on the phone the other night. Y'all know Perry Noble is? Y'all know who he is? Oh, yeah. We know who Perry Noble is. That's that's the guy who says that uh, don't come to church, expect to know me, because uh, I ain't going to sacrifice my family on the altar of ministry and hang out with people I'm not comfortable with. Yeah, that guy. Big church in the middle of nowhere, Anderson, South Carolina. And I, I was like, I'm, he preached here last year, didn't he? At the conference. And I said, I'm going to preach... Um, I'm going to preach this. Tell me what you think about it. And he was like, if all them church planners look back at you and nobody says amen, I'll tell you amen right now. You better stop talking or I'm going to rip you off and preach that myself at my conference. So here, here it goes. And this is something God's really been speaking to me lately. God, it's going to rock some of your worlds. I'm so excited about the result God's about to yield. And I don't leave my house on a Monday after the kinds of Sundays that we all go through without believing God wants me to make an investment. So I hope I can leave this deposit with you today. Courageous leaders. It's not coming up on the screen. I'm not that uh, prepared. (laughs) Courageous leadership is not the product of cut and paste. It must be born from the inside out. Okay. Courageous. I, I mean, is this true or false? It might not even be either. I just, it's a statement. This leadership is not the product 
of cut and paste. It must be born from the inside out. Here's Joshua facing a situation he's never faced before. You got to remember, this was Moses's boy. So he's already seen the Red Sea part for an entire nation to walk through on dry ground. In fact, he's already seen in his own leadership regime that God would part the Jordan River so the nation could walk across on dry ground. But this is a different situation. And here's what's interesting to me about this sun stand still prayer. And today I'm going to be challenging you to make a sun stand still request of the Lord and those you lead. What? You're going to be challenging me to to make a sun stand still request? (sighs) In your own ministries, in your own life, whether you're right now flipping coins, should I start the church? Should I not? Whether you're already in it and regretting it, whether you're deciding whether to buy the building, start the campus, do the thing, hire the staff member. But here's something you need to know. You can't mimic anyone else's miracle and be a courageous leader. (laughs) What? What? You can't mimic? What? I I had no idea that Miracle Mickey, uh, mimicking, don't say that 10 times fast. Miracle mimicking is, was a, was a big problem in the Christian church. Joshua didn't pray that the Red Sea would part because he needed the sun to stand still. Wow, there's an astute observation. Now imagine Joshua if he just did what he saw Moses do one time. Stretching his staff onto the dry ground. I mean, seriously, what are the chances of that happening? I mean, do do you think that Joshua was such a doofus that he's sitting there going, you know, I I don't know what to do here. You know, uh, know, the sun's going down. We need more light. The battle's not over yet. Should I go grab a staff and part the Red Sea? Hmm. Maybe I should ask for manna from heaven. I know. Let's let's put that snake back up on the pole and... And the dry ground splits apart and everybody falls in and dies. That's a lot of what I see going on in Christian leadership these days. It's like, I want to do what Moses did. And nothing happens. Because you ain't Moses. And you ain't Ed Young. And you ain't Andy. I don't care if you do dress cool like Ed. And have a table like Andy instead of a pulpit. Innovative. I don't care if you can cuss like Mark Driscoll, use video like Craig Groeschel, blog like Batterson. They'll ever read Batterson's blog. That's a smart somebody right there. He had a blog title the other day. He's speaking tomorrow, right? He's not speaking until... Good God, I'm glad because he says more in one little emboldened phrase in his blog than I said in my entire sermon catalog last year. He had a blog title the other day. Um, what was it? Supernatural synchronicity. What the heck is supernatural? That sounds so cool, but I don't know what it is. I wish I could think of things to say like that. And here's the deal. I can't. I can't. I'm from Monk's Corner, South Carolina. Do you know where it is? Exactly. But I'll tell you what I can do. 
I'll tell you what I can do, because I can't get up here and give you 21 irrefutable laws of how to grow your church in 90 days. You're going to have to talk to somebody else about that. I might not be able to part the Red Sea, but I can pray that God would make the sun stand still. And the supernatural power of God. Really, you can pray that God would make the sun stand still. Because that's really what the whole point of that passage is, is so that you can learn how to pray sun stand still prayers. You see the problem here? God begins to enliven your ministry and mine when we stop mixing and matching miracles and start letting God form inside of us the very thing he created us to do. When we allow God to what? Hmm. I'm concerned about this in the body of Christ because I go to conferences too, a lot of them. I think it's remarkable that you place such a premium on your development as a leader that you carved out time to be here and learn these things. There's no substitute for that. But there is also no substitute for a burning vision from God in your own heart. A what? Okay, where are we supposed to find that? Is this good stuff, guys? Thank you. What you better say, to... <laughs> that's why I bring them. They have. Yeah, he's talking to his staff there. Have to say, bring it. I am so tired. Hold this, please. Of us trying to make the Red Sea part when God wants us to size up our own situation. Yeah, you know, because you know, there's just all kinds of guys out there trying to make the Red Sea part. You know, it's it's rather embarrassing. I mean. You just look it up on the internet. There's all kinds of photographs of guys out there on the Red Sea trying to make it part and it just not working, you know. And then see what's needed for the hour. I mean, forget the uh, the Red Sea parting prayers. You need sun stand still prayers. If I hear one more person cussing on Sunday morning because Mark Driscoll did, you're not in Seattle. You're in Hicktown. They'll run your butt out. He gets to cuss. You don't. He gets to make the Red Sea part. You just get to make the sun stand still. And true, courageous leadership happens when you become so saturated with the specific will of God for your life in your city that you learn and draw inspiration for others. They are your stream. They are a resource, but they are not your source. Only God is. Do, can anyone translate that sentence for me, or was it a paragraph? I, I can't tell. And so, here, thanks. Here's, here's what's going on, and, 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 and I just thought of it this way the other day. What we're doing in a lot of cases is we're running around creating Mr. Potato Head Ministries. <laughs> All right, hang in there. All this is in Joshua chapter 10. Just, just look it up. You don't even have to say amen now. I'm wound up and I know I'm doing a good job. <laughs> good job is not the words I would be using, but oh, okay. And so we get an eye from this guy and an ear from that guy and a mustache from the other. And we end up not building a ministry at all. We end up building a Frankenstein. 
And nobody reads more books than I do. And nobody reads more blogs than I do. And nobody listens to more podcasts than I do. But they are only inputs. God is my filter, and he uniquely made you to do things I could never do. And the sooner you begin to tap into them and begin to size up your situation according to the specificity of who God made you to be, the sooner you will see the breakthrough, miraculous power of Jesus Christ in your own life. That was point number one. I'll do point number two, and I'm out of your way. Can I say one more thing about that? One more, just real quick. Because I haven't got to share this yet, and it's, it's really fresh. I... Okay. Um, our, our, our church, when we were two months old, it was just about to be Easter time. And um, one of our staff members had just had a baby. Well, one of our staff members' wives had just had a baby. And we're in the hospital. And there was an Easter egg basket on the counter. And one of our core team members who was serving as our creative director picked up the egg and said, "Um, hey, I've got an idea. Just totally being stupid. Why don't we put Easter eggs all over the city of Charlotte for Easter? Now, we had about 200 people come in at this time. Why don't we take Easter eggs and put them all over the city of Charlotte? And then somebody else chimes in. Yeah, but let's don't put them all over Charlotte. Let's drop them out of a helicopter. Three weeks later, three weeks later, we dropped, was it 20,000 eggs? Out of a helicopter onto a football field. Yeah, this seems to be the ever-so-popular thing for people to mimic. And he's the guy who invented it. That's right. You ever wondering, why is it that the purpose-driven churches in your neck of the woods every Easter are dropping plastic Easter eggs out of helicopters? Well, yeah, now you know. And over 2,000 people came to that event when we were a church of 200 people. Now my office administrator tells me that we get seven calls a week. Seven calls a week. That's one every day. Asking where we got the idea for the Easter egg drop outreach. Almost like it's a household name. The Easter egg drop outreach. You know, everybody's doing it. Dropping eggs out of helicopters. You know, just Easter egg drop outreach. And I think it's great. I think it's great when you can borrow an idea. Hey, man, I... I, I've got so many things I can't wait to rip off right now that I just heard from some sermons last week. I am all about, I am all about inspiration. I am all about transplanting, but I am also all about internalizing it according to the hard wiring and DNA God has given you as a leader. So let's don't all just go dropping eggs out of helicopters. Maybe you need to drop yours out of a hot air balloon. Maybe you need to shoot yours out of a cannon. I mean, we all need to drop eggs on people, but there are many ways to do it. This is a little bit of inside the shop talk regarding these seeker-sensitive guys. We all need to drop Easter eggs, you know, because, you know... Mm. 
I mean, we can all see a clear biblical mandate that we would shower our cities with eggs, but let's get creative about it. Let's don't try to part the Red Sea where God said to make the sun stand still. And I'm just not hearing as a young leader much teaching on how to take what God is saying through someone else, synthesize it, internalize it, contextualize it, and then do it for the glory of God. Do not skip the process. And I'll give you one more example. I heard of a reverse offering that a church in Cincinnati did before we kicked off our capital campaign. Uh, The leader's name is Brian Tome, right, Rick? Brian Tome? They started off their capital campaign by giving away $60,000. Who is he preaching about again? And... um, he said he was preaching, right? I heard that idea. I thought that would work great at Elevation. But at Elevation, we're not going to give away 60. We're going to give away 40. That would be the equivalent of our one week's offering. And plus, that's all the money we had in the bank. It was funny because they ran an article about us on the front page of the Charlotte Observer. But the part they didn't tell anybody about on the front page is that my executive pastor had to take out a home equity line in case we couldn't make payroll that week. That's how close it came to the line. You don't see that on the front page of the paper. Nobody wants to talk about the process. Nobody wants to talk about the moment where Joshua said, son, stand still, and then went backstage and wet himself wondering if it was really going to happen. I don't want to talk about that. And I'm telling you, I was inspired by that idea. But we began to pray about how it should look for us, and so we called it the Bless Back Project, and we set up websites for people to share their story, and what God did was remarkable. You see, because he had the courageous leadership of of praying sun stand still prayers. And see, these are all examples of of that. No courageous leadership can't just be cut and paste. There are no Mr. Potato Head ministries being used mightily by God. The real good stuff has to be born from the inside out. One more point. The difference between a daydream and a burning vision is the audacity to act. Uh, where is this in the Bible? I just oh, that's right. Sun stands still. Sorry, Joshua ten is no. The difference between a daydream and a burning vision is the audacity to act. Joshua prayed this magnanimous prayer. Son, stand still in the sky, something only God can do. But the part I didn't read you in the passage is the part in verse 7 that says, when Joshua was sizing up the situation, that he marched up from Gilgal with his entire army, including all the best fighting men. In verse 9, after an all-night march, Joshua took them by surprise. And then, in verse 13, the sun stands still. What am I trying to say? Did you cover the part about where God said he was going to give them the victory and he was the one fighting for them? You see, it's really subtle, but the the trick that's going on here and the reason why this is bad is because the emphasis is taken off of God and his promises and what God was doing and it's now put on Joshua. I mean, look at that Joshua guy. What a hairy, audacious thing, audacious. Yeah, well, you know, it's what a b hag for him to uh, 
uh, to pray for that the sun would stand still. See, it's all about the, the Joshua Behag. And you can be just like Josh. Wait a second. Wasn't it about what God did? You see, the emphasis is on the wrong syllable. Emphasis is on the wrong syllable. It's in the wrong place. He's missing the point. If you're going to pray that God would make the sun stand still in your life and in your ministry, I'm not going to do that. I I pray, give us this day our daily bread. God does not invite me. Christ did not invite me to pray that the sun would stand still. And uh, give us this day our sun stand still needs and whatever. You're going to pray that God would make the sun stand still? You better be ready to march all night long. Well, there's an application. Woo! <laughs> yeah, because he forgot to tell you that, you know, because uh, if you see, that's the thing, though. You got to be careful. If you if you have the audacity to uh, to courageously pray a sun stand still prayer, then you need to be prepared to march all night long. I have no idea what that means. I, I'm lost. Joshua didn't pray sun stand still in the meditation room with the gurgling of the brook uh-huh. and the sounds of Yanni. Yeah. Prayed it on the battlefield. Could it be that God isn't waiting on us to pray big prayers anymore? We've all learned how to do that. God, use me for your kingdom. I despaired of the thought that my life might pass me by without God moving greatly on my behalf. That's fine when you're 16 years old. But how about when you're 25? And you've got everything going for you the right way. You're a speaker on the speaking circuit. And now it comes time to uproot your life and move to a city that you don't know. The biggest place I'd ever lived in my life was Boiling Springs, North Carolina. Boiling Springs, North Carolina. They get stuck in traffic on 485 going into Charlotte. And for your wife to look at you with loving eyes that seem to suggest what in the world have you gotten me into. And then to have a baby on the way. And you can calculate your offering based on who gets paid on the 1st and the 15th of every month. Because there's only about three checks coming in a week. I heard a rumor the other day that really ticked me off, and I was glad I heard it before I came here because I preach better when I'm angry. I get real anointed when I get mad. Somebody wrote on our blog, on their blog, about our church, that when we started, we received a quarter million dollars of funding from a major church planning organization. And I just want to say, if there's any representative from that organization in the room, write me my check because we still hadn't got it. It got lost in the mail somewhere. We didn't, we didn't have all that. And I'm kind of glad we didn't have all that. Can I tell you why? You remember in Rocky Three, the most anointed movie in the history? Second most. Rocky Four's first. Rocky Three is like the Old Testament. Rocky Four is like the new. And um, <clears throat> do, you remember, do you remember Rocky just got beat by Clubber Lang, played by Mr. T? 
And he has to face Apollo Creed. And Apollo comes in the gym and says, you lost the eye of the tiger. I believe that in this age of technology where it's so easy for us to leverage the bottom shelf methodologies that require no processed relationship or vision from God. I believe that there is a generation of us rising up who have lost the eye of the tiger. We don't know what it means. We've lost the eye of the tiger. Oh, man. Means to duke it out. We never learn how to cast compelling vision because somebody else financed it for us. So if you're going to pray that the sun would stand still in your ministry, you better be prepared to fight all night. If you're going to do this thing, and I'm going to speak specifically and prophetically, not in a spooky, weird way. Yeah, okay. Okay, can't wait. It's already spooky, weird because uh, you're telling us to pray sun stand still prayers and. Uh, Jesus didn't teach us to do that. Way and a very biblical way. To those of you who are on the edge and the ledge of maybe stepping out into this thing called church planning, first of all, congratulations. There's no greater calling. But if you can do anything else, if you can do anything else in the peace of God reside in your life, do it. Because there are some days in this ministry where all I have to go back to is page 23 when God impregnated a young heart with a vision that one day I'd be doing this. And some days when I feel inadequate and God says, you're right, you are inadequate. That's all I have. Jeremiah 1, 5, before you were born, I knew you. And before you were formed, I appointed you in the womb, a prophet to the nations. Sometimes the only thing you have to hang on to in the process is the promise on your way to the payoff. But if you're going to pray these big prayers, guy, if you're going to put your wife. I'm hearing words. Isn't I'm does. Hmm. Having a tough time following any kind of coherent train of thought here. Are you, you know, anyone, can you translate this? Uh, well, I, we're losing the eye of the tiger here. I, apparently, I'm losing the ear of the tiger as well. You know, but, you know, that's, that's how it goes. Oh, wait. It's the eye of the tiger. It's come back. I, I found it. This is the official theme song song for uh, those who have the audacity to sing and uh, to pray sun stand still prayers. That's right. This is from the Old Testament, uh, Rocky Three. Make sure that you don't pray a, a Lord part the Red Sea prayer because then you'll be mimicking a prayer right on man and, and, and if you're gonna um, you know drop Easter eggs you may not want to do it out of a hell of a out of a helicopter you may want to instead do it from a hot air balloon or have them shot from a cannon these are pearls of wisdom from uh, Pastor Stephen Furtick here. But whatever you do, make sure that you have a burning vision and, and that is birthed from the inside. But whatever you do, if you're going to pray a, 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 a sun stand still prayer, then keep in mind that you're going to have to march all night too. Because we've all lost the eye of the tiger. Uh, uh, uh. 
enough of that. Let's get back to the sermon. Life on the line, dude. If you're going to give up your paycheck and trade in security, if you're going to pray that the sun would stand still, don't you do it because you're fed up with your pastor and you think you can teach better than him. And some senior adults told you so one time on a Sunday night. You'd better be ready to march all night. I have no idea what that means. I just Why? Because this is not how you use the scripture. And I would stop right there, but I'd like to end on an encouraging note. Yeah, please, at least a coherent one. A good idea. I would like to get invited back to some of these sometimes. I got a belief that in some way, large or small, there is a specific supernatural miracle that you need from God in your ministry. I, I mean, I, we, we need one right now. Our church has grown a lot, guys. We started with 19 people. We had 3,300. I, I can use uh, the supernatural ability to interpret um, Furtick. It's apparently one of those uh, tongues. 100 in church this Sunday. God's really done some remarkable things. And I'm telling you, it's like the sun has stood still. I explained it this way. It's like in our ministry, by the grace of God and only to his glory, he's compressed so much success into such a short span of time. We feel so unworthy of it. We're facing some dilemmas and issues right now that we have no clue what the outcome will be. Um, A while back, we decided to do a capital campaign with Enjoy and and Rick Campbell, who's here. And um, we had a building picked out. John, have I told you how the story went down yet? I don't think you've heard the whole story. This will make the hairs on the back of your neck stand up, Bill. We had... This building, 42,000 square feet, and um, we were going to go in and retrofit it. It was going to cost $3 million. Rick said that's perfect because we've run your numerical analysis, and $3 million is about the top tier of what you can expect to raise in a three-year campaign. And we um, found out on the Monday morning that we were going to announce it to all of our volunteer leaders. We'd already made the magnets and themed the capital campaign. We're going to call it Dominate. And that's, that's exactly what I feel like God's called us to do in our cities, by the way. The church has spent enough time living in the realm of pontificate and conversate and participate. It's time to dominate. It's time that every sphere of our city would be filled with the glory of God like the waters cover the sea. And um, so we were going to dominate. And the property manager called that morning to say that the deal was dead and there was no need to discussing it any further. Just like that. And that's a hard Monday night message when you got to get up and say, um, God's called us to dominate. And we're going to do a capital campaign. And we don't have a building that we're campaigning for yet. But, but God is good. I mean, I... I know I've never been Joshua asking the sun to stand still, and I'm not trying to put myself in that league. But it feels a little like that sometimes, doesn't it? Some of you have things God has put on your heart that are so big and so ridiculous, you laugh at yourself sometimes. Huh? And if you don't have that kind of dream and you don't have that kind of audacity, by all means, stay out of the ministry. 
Because we don't need another person to put up another church and get a couple hundred people and gather them around and take them as deep as they can go. If you don't believe God. Whoa, whoa, we don't. What? Oh, we don't need another. Oh, wow, wow, wow. Listen to this. Hang on a second. Backing up the tape here. Whoa, ho, ho. Listen to the contempt for those pastors who are faithfully preaching God's word that may not have more than a hundred or a couple hundred people in their church. I'm not trying to put myself in that league, but it feels a little like that sometimes, doesn't it? Some of you have things God has put on your heart that are so big and so ridiculous, you laugh at yourself sometimes. Huh? And if you don't have that kind of dream and you don't have that kind of audacity, by all means, stay out of the ministry. Because we don't need another person to put up another church and get a couple hundred people and gather them around and take them as deep as they can go. If you don't believe God can... Wow. Wow. Unbelievable. Utter disdain and a public rebuke of those who are those pastors who are faithfully preaching God's word and taking people in depth into what God's word actually teaches. This from the man who's babbling about, I have no idea what. can use you to transform your city. Stay home. Do something else. Make a lot of money somewhere. I would say that what the church really needs are no Stephen Furtick's and pastors who will do nothing but faithfully shepherd God's flock, regardless of how many people uh, God sends to them to under-shepherd. To faithfully preach God's word in season and out of season. And I want to tell you that we went on with the capital campaign. No building. Still no building. How about that? And we didn't raise $3 million, which we were disappointed by. We only raised $6.4 million over the course of the campaign. And, and, and here's, here's what I want to tell you about that. Without a blueprint for a building, without an idea of the site, we're going to start seven campuses in the next seven years. And, you know, none of that. Just a vision to dominate our city with the love and the gospel of Jesus. And here's what I want to tell you. Peel back all the veneer of all the cool terminologies. Guys, I don't care how relevantly, authentically, missionally, incarnationally. If God doesn't get involved in your dream, it's not worth dreaming. And how am I supposed to know that God is getting involved in my dream? Oh, I know, because I had the audacity to pray a sun stand still prayer. Yeah, okay. And if the dream that's in your heart for your church and your ministry isn't so big, then when it's all said and done, everybody will have to blame it on God. Because I guarantee you there's a conversation that did not happen around the campsite in Israel that night. Hey, who made the sun stand still earlier? Was it you? Uh, that would be God. <laughs> Is that, was that your deal? Who, who stopped the sun? Come Unbelievable. Advent, uh, this is an adventure in missing the point, for sure. Come on, stand, who's who made the sun stand still? Come on, fess up. God did. It was the Lord who fought for Israel. Read the text. I want your life to be so empowered by the vision God gives you that at the end of the day, when the sun goes down, everybody knows it couldn't have been you. That's why I love to share the results we've seen. Do you know we had over 1,300 people? Maybe that was his point, I guess. We'll give their lives to Christ in our second year of ministry. They what? And I love to share that with you. 
Because you know Furtick couldn't pull that off. You've been listening to me for the last 33 minutes, and you know I can't do it. I had to be God. Courageous leaders have not only the conviction of their courage, but the audacity to act. And I pray that in your life and in your ministry, wherever you are, whatever you're facing, whatever you're dealing with, that God would make the sun stand still over your life, over your town, over your city, over your church. Amazing how he took a text that's not about us and made it about him. Amazing. Just absolutely amazing. Church, over every hope and dream that he's planted in your heart, that the sun would stand still and God would do more, faster, take you farther than you ever thought that you could go for the glory and honor of his name. Thanks, guys. Uh, there you have it. A little inside shop talk. I thought it'd be uh, educational for you to hear what uh, seeker-driven pastors say to each other. And one of the things they do say is that they pretty much slap any of the guys out there who who really aspire to, you know, preach God's word and take people deep into God's word and, you know, and are, you know, faithfully shepherd a flock of, you know, a hundred, couple hundred people. Yeah, that can't possibly be from God because those guys just don't have enough audacity to pray sun stand still prayers. Yeah. All right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Love the eye of the tiger thing, though. That was uh, really good. Apparently, uh, he has the eye of the tiger. Man, I, I loved this song when I was a kid. Still has a kind of a catchy beat to it, you know. That's right. Sing, pray those sun stand still prayers, and uh, you you can have the eye of the tiger. But remember, I gotta warn you: if you're gonna pray those sun stand still prayers, be ready to march all night. Just you know that they, that goes with the territory, man. Just got to let you know. Oh, man. I just... What has happened to uh, the biblical pastors and preachers? Where have they gone? How is it that these guys are the ones who are running over the church and literally taking over um, entire congregations like a virus? Oh, man. All right. Well, sadly, we're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Need to remind you, Fighting for the Faith, this is listener-supported radio, which means that your financial support is essential in order for us to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Of course, you know, if I would just learn how to pray one of those sun stand still prayers, then nobody would have to support us, you know, because when sun stands still, it rains money. But since, obviously, I have some kind of a character flaw and I don't know how to pray any of these sunstand still prayers, I need to politely ask you to support us so that we can continue bringing this program to you. You can do that by visiting fightingforthefaith.com and clicking on one of our friendly yellow donate buttons. Or, if you would like, you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code four. Six zero three eight. Yeah, there we go. So, sun stand still prayers. Unbelievable. Un- just, uh, he mentioned the gospel, but didn't really say anything about it. 
said that you know he's winning people with the gospel, but I would wonder what if he knows what the gospel is. Anyway, all right. Um, if you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard so far, you can talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. Hey, happy birthday to Dave Mazza out there. He's one of our listeners and a good friend of mine. Tell him to keep it in the short grass. Uh, hey, until next time, may the Lord bless you. We'll talk to you tomorrow. <laughs>